early childhood um, impressions, um, indoctrination, the programming, it's hard to shake. Mm. Uh, I remember early childhood too, just, you know, lying in bed, crying, praying the sinner's prayer over and over because yeah. I was afraid somehow right. maybe I was going to go to hell. Like it, I didn't do it right yeah. or it didn't take or yeah. I'd somehow had, you know, like gotten it revoked or something. Yeah. I don't know. I, I had so much unnecessary anxiety as a kid. Wonderful people, welcome back. You came back, thank you, to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, Glenn Siepert. I am your host. I'm a real live person behind the mic. Uh, This is the What If Project. This is episode number 108. And it's the fourth installment of our summertime series. Uh, Here at the What If Project, summer started the first Monday in July because we ended our Pride series the end of June. We have July and August. We're just not having any kind of series. It's just like random conversations with awesome people about things that matter. That's pretty much sums up what we're doing uh, this summer. So far, we've talked to Jay Baker. We've talked to uh, Father James Martin. We've talked to Steve Austin. And today we're talking to my friend Chrissy Stroop who helped edit a book called Emptying the Pews or Empty the Pews. And man, this book, you you have got to go get this book. It's a collection of essays written by people who have left the church, um, in some cases left their faith. Uh, they tell their stories of their experiences in the church. Uh, they tell their stories of their the ways they've been hurt or in some cases wounded by the church. Um, so many important things. And I think this book is important because it addresses a lot of things that people tend to ignore or just completely overlook. And I think that if the issues that are brought up in this book are addressed faithfully by the church, I think it could propel the church into a really good direction in the future. So Chrissy's doing important work. Uh, Her story is a unique story. I'm not going to tell you anything about her now. I will let her do all of that. Um, in the episode, she tells her story of her upbringing, uh, kind of where she's at and her understanding of faith these days, uh, lays down some challenges for us, as you can tell by the title of the episode, and I think that uh, you're going to get a lot out of it, uh, just as I did as well. Special music today is from my friend uh, Before Jane. I've known this guy for a long time. He's a very gifted, talented musician doing amazing things in his world. Go download his music. It's on Spotify, it's on Apple Music, it's all over the place. I'll put the link to some of the stuff in the show notes. Go download it, listen to it, pass it around, do the thing, support the young man. Uh, I love him, he's doing great things, so please, please, please uh, go show him some What If Project love. Also in the show notes, Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show financially. So if this has encouraged you, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, Uh, Consider giving a little bit every month from $3 a month to $20 a month, and every tier gets its own reward of some sort. So go check that out. 
Uh, also, if you want to support the show, go pick up a t-shirt at the Heretic Shop. I'll put that link in the show notes as well. Uh, t-shirts, mugs, hoodies, backpacks, all sorts of things for all sorts of people. Uh, so go check out the Heretic Shop as well. So all of that said, I'm going to shut up and we're going to let Chrissy take over the mic. Uh, this is episode number 108 and it's my conversation with Chrissy Stroop. Enjoy. What if everything we know is just a lie, is just a sign of the times? Just take off your disguise and look into my eyes to see if a few lows just in front of you. Let's run away together, pack your bags, and we'll take to the skies. It comes as no surprise to me that you're everything this world's good and me and my wins. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're sitting down with my friend Chrissy Stroop, who helped edit a book called Empty the Pews, which is a collection of essays of sorts where various people share some of their experiences in the church. So uh, Chrissy, welcome to the podcast. It's wonderful to be here with you. Uh, thanks, Glenn. It's great, to, it's great to be with you. Thanks. So Chrissy, I first heard about you on Twitter uh, from someone who was sharing a tweet you sent out with the hashtag Empty the Pews. And it caught my attention because of the work that we do here in the podcast. And then I sort of went down the rabbit hole of Chrissy Stroop and started exploring your tweets <laughs> and uh, Googling you. And I picked up the book and I'm just so intrigued by your story. So maybe to kick us off, I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit more about your story. I mean, I've heard bits and pieces here and there on podcasts and obviously through Google, but would love to hear a little bit more about you and your life and, and your work. Uh, sure. Thanks. So uh, I, was born and mostly raised in central Indiana, um, north suburb of Indianapolis called Fishers is where I mostly grew up, but I was born in a tiny farming town in northern Indiana and lived there until about age four and a half. And um, except for kindergarten and then half of sixth grade, my whole K through 12 experience, well, first through 12, um, was in, you know, evangelical type Christian schools, the type that teach young earth creationism and, mm. and so forth, and that are, you know, have required chapel services every week and yeah. are pretty hardline indoctrination machines, really. That was my world, um, too. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, yeah, I, uh, I graduated from Heritage Christian School in Indianapolis. There was a period there, um, 1993 to 1995, when my family moved to Colorado Springs because my dad, he was a high school marching band director when I was born. And for a time, he was just doing freelance music stuff, sound mm. engineering, arranging, producing, a little bit of songwriting. Um, but he had become a music pastor and worship leader. And at that point, we were in an independent Christian, you know, restoration movement church, the, um, you know, slightly more liberal ones than the uh, Church of Christ, right? Mm, but it's, yeah. um, so they could have some musical instruments in the service and that sort of thing. But <laughs> it was always like really controversial if my dad wanted to use drums or- I was gonna say drums are a no-no. <laughs> <laughs> even when he had somebody, and my dad was a drummer, um, mm. even when he had somebody play like the trumpet, there was, you know, um, complaints from the old people. Yeah. So he got a call one day uh, from a guy named Ron Clarkson a pastor in the missionary church who was starting uh, a church plant in Colorado Springs. And um, when I look back on this story, I like to call it a phone call from God because it's kind <laughs> of a play on the whole calling sort of thing. You yeah. know? And um, he was doing the whole mega church inspired or Bill Hybels inspired 
seeker sensitive thing, right? So like you make sure it's a rock show, you call the uh, bulletin a program. Yep. Like it's awesome. It's not your grandma's church. It has the same sick patriarchal and anti-LGBTQ theology, but right. it's cool. It's, well, it got fog <laughs> machines. <laughs> <laughs> so, so dad was really like intrigued by that model, but he didn't mm. want to uproot the family. Uh, you know, so uh, he told Ron that pretty much probably they're not, he's not, he's not going to really consider the offer. Um, but Ron then, of course, played sort of like the ultimate evangelical trump card, which is would you just pray about it? Mm. And if someone asks you to pray about something, like I think there's a pretty good chance that it ends up being God's will. I mean, depending on you know whether there's a part of you that actually wants it to be. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. so, so, <laughs> so over the ensuing weeks, you know, it went to light from like there's like a 90% chance we won't move to Colorado Springs. There's like a 70% chance we won't. Okay, there's like a 50% chance we're moving to Colorado Springs. Okay, God is calling us to move to Colorado Springs. I had a vision. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, dad had to go there a little bit earlier to, to get started. So we had a couple of few months there when he was not at home. But then we joined him in Colorado Springs in, the, uh, in, in January of 1993. And so we got there, I was in the middle of sixth grade, as I think I said, um, for the spring semester. And yeah. my mom didn't have her Christian school teaching job there at that time. So I ended up going to a public school called um, Timberview Middle School. Yeah, that's what it was mm. called. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it was, I was very, very awkward there, having mm. been a Christian school kid for the whole rest of my life, except for kindergarten. Um, but by the end of the school year there, like I wanted to stay and I liked the science teacher and I was like, yeah, I think I can get with theistic evolution. Mm. And, um, you know, I had some friends and I begged them not to make me go to the Christian school, which they had said, okay, you know, next year you're going to the Christian school. Uh, that was Colorado Springs Christian school. And it was even more hardline and fundamentalist than heritage Christian school in, mm. Indian in Indianapolis in some ways. I mean, they were both uh, interdenominational schools but come on, we know that basically means Baptist. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> but they might have like a token Catholic and you're like, whoa, what are you doing here? Yeah, but, like um, radical. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, the one in Indianapolis even had a Seventh-day Adventist family. But, um, <laughs> so um, mom had become a teacher at um, Colorado Springs Christian School at that time. She's an elementary school teacher. And so I had to go there and there was like, just like no listening to what I maybe wanted or, mm. you know, yeah. so I ended up in the Christian school and was taught, you know, young earth creationism in a very hard line way again. And even in Bible class, and I think it was seventh grade with Mr. Bromer, um, basically let's call it curse of ham late. You know, <laughs> I remember that we got a, uh, a worksheet that I don't know whose it was, but uh, I mean, I don't know what curriculum made it because we had a mix of curricula in that school and some of them were normal and some of them were fundamentalist. Uh, well, the Bi none of the Bible curricula was normal, but some of right. them were better, <laughs> were better than others. Right. <laughs> some of them might be redeemable in some way. <laughs> but I mean, like in history, like we had secular books and Christian book materials. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Um, anyway, we had this worksheet that just basically showed like Noah's three sons, and they were all like racial, racial caricatures, you know, like Ham definitely was a, you know, stereotyped looking African person. Mm -hmm. And they had arrows 
showing uh, where they supposedly went to populate the earth after the flood. So the teacher looked a little bit embarrassed when he handed that out and he didn't spell everything out, but we kind of got the idea, right? Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> And um, so, yeah, there was that. We also got Bill, Go Bill Gothard's um, umbrella of authority in that class. I didn't know who Bill Gothard was. Like, mm. he just didn't really cross my radar as a kid. I remember the um, diagram, but I don't remember the name. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but yeah, but then when I read about IBLP, having yeah. gotten older and tried to like look back at, mm. um, at everything and put it in some kind of context, I was like, I've seen that umbrella. Um, and I mean, yeah, that just kind of brings up the point that, you know, like extreme fundamentalism and Christian reconstructionism they may not be official ideologies adhered to mm. by Christian school teachers and administrators in many uh, Christian schools that aren't like little fly-by-night church schools, but they're still very, very influential. I mean, yeah. in high school, I got all the Christian worldview stuff, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like the R.C. Sproul. And I don't know that we actually read David Nobel, but the Nobel kind of ideas, mm. you know. Um, yeah. I never went to Summit Ministries, but yeah, but you know, there we were in Colorado Springs for a few years. Um, mm right after um, Dobson had moved focus there mm. from Orange County, California. So we had like um, the, the, at, at that time, high ranking focus executive in our church, um, Kurt Leander, which my dad seemed to see as a feather in the church's cap at the time. Mm. He remembers that differently. <laughs> He's like, oh, I never, I never really liked focus. It's like, yes, you did. You yes, even, you did. You, know, <laughs> you even Submit applied, you, you even applied to like, score um music for like focus film spots and stuff i don't remember <laughs> if he ever got any of those gigs but he totally applied he tried <laughs> <laughs> and also like when he was driving in his um i don't even know what year 80 something orange red pinto where the air conditioning didn't work and i'm not even i don't even remember if the fm radio worked <laughs> i th i think it did but he was usually i mean he would listen to rush limbaugh on it and he's like oh i never really took rush limbaugh that seriously <laughs> <laughs> listen to him all the time <laughs> <laughs> sure dad yeah, i mean fine. i'm glad you've moved on <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but so yeah um you know when you're i'm i'm not exactly a pk but i am the child of two You're pretty close who work, to it yeah <laughs> who work in christian ministry and that means yep. you see how the sausage is made yeah um and so you know i saw all the at least well not all of it i was shielded from some of it but some of the ugliness around the falling out that eventually happened between pastor ron clarkson senior pastor who was going on his little power trip and hmm. you know like just being really um, controlling and abusively demanding toward people mm. and um, who was threatening the job security of my dad and the youth pastor, Marty Longcore. So they were both from Indiana and they decided to write a strongly worded letter to the Missionary Church Umbrella Organization uh, about what happened with Ron and then mm. move back to Indiana and start their own church plant together where Marty was the senior pastor and dad was again the music pastor. And um, and by strongly worded letter, I mean super vague and passive aggressive, but implied a lot of what was right. <laughs> that's what evangelicals do, right? They never yep. speak it's a directly. typical church letter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so I never mm. kind of completely got to the bottom of it either. But uh, by picking my dad's brain now and again, um, he has told me uh, some of the like specific incidents of 
Ron just behaving in authoritarian ways. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he asked somebody to go get some pencils because the church was out of, out of pencils, and but that person was working on somebody else on something else, so they sent somebody else to get the pencils, and then Ron yelled at them because they were supposed to get the pencils, and you know, stupid stuff oh, like that. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> and that's the kind of stuff that Dad remembers. But, <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, <laughs> I had to work really hard to get him to remember that because yeah. <laughs> see, I'm obsessed with documenting, uh, our past and I don't just mean my families. Mm. I, I mean, you know, the past of people who lived, uh, evangelicalism and particularly the last say, you know, 30 to 50 years of it, the yeah. children of the culture wars, if you will. Yeah. Um, and it's great if the parents of the children of the culture wars are sort of mellowing in some cases, mm. but you know, they really screwed us up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I actually have a pretty good relationship with um, both my parents now. My dad now by a weird series of circumstances has ended up um, in an LGBTQ affirming uh, ELCA Lutheran church. Wow. So the, the good Lutherans yeah. um, to, to cap off his um I mean, I assume it will be in the, like his, his last church ministry job because, mm. you know, he's, he's close to retirement age. Um, and I won't go into all the details, but, you know, things were kind of ugly at the previous church before that, which is how he ended up on a job search again. Anyway, um, he ended up in a much cooler church. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sounds like it. I mean, not in the like rock show style way, but in the like, these are actually good people. (laughs) (laughs) Good human beings. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. The whole church plant with, with Marty Longcore too. um, That didn't go well. It lasted, I think. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they had two years of seed funding. I don't think it could Mm -hmm. have been longer. Just thinking back on what churches we were involved with in high school. Um, So the church did not become self-sustaining, had its funding pulled. And then I remember the, um, I guess the treasurer of that church, she knew, of course, what dad was paid and how much he was giving to the church. So she blamed him for not giving a full tithe when he couldn't afford it. Uh, I mean, you know, the family could not afford that Mm. on a Christian school teachers and music pastors salaries. Um, So, right. You see how the sausage is made. And at the same time, you know, I'm from about the age of 16 in particular, just have a lot of having a lot of doubts about everything, which is of course not safe to have. And that's a forbidden word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but even before I was uncomfortable with some things, I was uncomfortable with what, you know, I'll just refer to, I guess, by the shorthand, the curse of ham handout mm. in, uh, in seventh grade. I was also uncomfortable in seventh grade when we went away for a quote unquote retreat day mm. with our class. And that consisted of, you know, being fear-mongered and lied to all day about uh, sex and, yeah. you know, being, being given, given a whole litany of alternative facts mm-hmm. as they stand in for, for sex ed. And then at the end of that day, being asked if we would prayerfully consider signing a purity pledge while <laughs> manipulative music was playing, you know, <laughs> go sit by yourselves in this gym and prayerfully consider whether you should sign this pledge, but don't sign it unless you really mean it. And, you know, it was the hardcore stuff, like, don't do anything with a 
boyfriend or girlfriend that you wouldn't do with someone else's husband or wife, because then if you don't marry them, you're cheating on your and their future spouse mm. kind of shaming kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. along with the you all know, like, you know, condoms never work. They definitely don't prevent AIDS. Everyone gets AIDS. Everyone gets pregnant all the time. Yeah. You know? You're like chewed, you're like a chewed piece of gum. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I don't remember the gum illustration. Um, I think there was I heard that, that one a lot. <laughs> If I remember correctly, <laughs> that um, they separated the boys from the girls, and I was considered a boy, obviously. So they might have told the girls that. Uh, yeah. So of course we all signed it because, like, we didn't know if we'd be expelled if we didn't. I mean, it wasn't mm-hmm. a real choice, and yeah. I already was chafing at just the fact that it wasn't a real choice. That it was manipulative. Something clearly fell off to me mm-hmm. already in some grade, but I think I didn't really revisit those feelings until I was about 16 and read through the entire Bible for the first time and um, found a lot of contradictions and things that I didn't, you know, really understand how they could be associated with a good God, like genociding entire peoples and, you know, apocalyptic violence. And, uh, oh, I was also really kind of scared of the rapture growing up, which is another whole thing. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... um, Sorry, my daughter's yelling in the background. It's quarantine (laughs) days and just, it is what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hi, Gwen's daughter. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, so yeah, I went to talk to our then pastor, Hmm. um, Marcus Warner, about my doubts. And we all thought he was like a big intellectual. because like sometimes he quoted Dostoevsky in a sermon and he had a doctorate of theology from a bible college so so, you know super intellectual by our standards and he also was like one of these big time spiritual warfare demons are everywhere he'd seen demons uh spent halloween praying against demons kind of people Mm. um so i talked to him at first he seemed very sympathetic he sent me home with an apologetics book to read and it wasn't Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel wasn't one of the famous ones, so I don't remember what it was, but I Mm. do remember it was in question and answer format, and it addressed many of my questions, but the answers just weren't satisfying. They were just too glib. And so I went back and said that I still had doubts, and then all of a sudden he pulls out, you know, some major spiritual abuse, as I understand it now. And he says, oh, well, you must be harboring some sin in your life, because obviously something is clouding you from reading the Bible through the Holy Spirit. Mm. Or you would be able to see that the Bible is inerrant, yeah. right? So, so now the problem is with me. Um, so gaslighting, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it teaches you to doubt your own doubts, to gaslight yourself. I mean, right. that's that's what evangelicalism does to people. Yeah. It is a major mindfuck. Yeah. So you know, yada yada yada. I have a lot of anxiety and issues and deconstruction going on for a very long time, and. Mm. Um, I don't know how to work through it. I finally start getting some, I, I did go to a secular college though, where deconstruction continued, but because I was still trying to stay evangelical in secular college, I didn't make close friends for the most part. Hmm. Um, and so that's kind of sad, but I did get, I mean, I was on the elite culture warrior track, right? Hmm. So these Christian schools are college prep. They have like AP classes. Some of them, they probably really shouldn't be able to get approved, but I actually took AP biology in my Christian school and got a five on the exam, even though the teacher would not teach us the evolution chapters. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) He did tell us to go home, read them on our own and regurgitate them for the exam. So, 
yay, lying for Jesus in order right. to get ahead in the world so that That's we right. can be <laughs> well-placed to fight the culture war. Right. Go read it on your own, but we're not going to talk about it in here. <laughs> right, but you should answer it on the exam like they want you to answer it. Right. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> So that's not awkward at all. Um, so yeah, you know, then I get into grad school. I'm still just like psychologically in a really bad place, but I'm studying modern Russian history. Uh, I get married and divorced in the middle of grad school. I'm mm -hmm. kind of I'm studying religious ideology in history as kind of like a way of dealing with things. But I never understood, even though I saw a lot of parallels between the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century Russian Christian intellectuals. I studied and their ideology and that that I had had you know in, uh, inculcated into me growing up mm. but I, I didn't know eventually I would see it all come full circle that they had these sort of same ideas about worldviews and the competition between them a lot of that stuff actually goes back to early 20th century Christian thinkers uh, many of the major influential ones were Russia and mm. uh, Russian and they became influential you know because of the rise of the Soviet Union and via anti-communism hmm. and so i've actually put some of those pieces together as a scholar which was sort of fun hmm. um and you got your, your doctor, <laughs> right you got your phd in that kind of stuff right is that true right but I've, yeah. I've um you know given up on chasing the tenure track dream at this point so I'm yeah just a, just a writer in oregon um <laughs> I, I was i was teaching um i was teaching at a russian university for several years after grad school because we had connections stanford had connections with um the university in russia the russian presidential academy of national economy and public administration um that had been running the stanford and moscow study abroad program and so i sent my cv in there they wanted to hire foreign faculty at that time and then I had a front row seat as, you know, Russian Western relations went to shit. And <laughs> my, uh, my ruble denominated salary was severely devalued while I was trying to pay off some debt in dollars and, you know, uh, good life experience. Like, I mean, mm. it was actually in many ways. Like, <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> Somewhat. There, there, <laughs> yeah, but it was, but it was also rough. And I also, during that time, um, I was, I was dating a queer girl, um, polyamorous. I wasn't dating anybody else, but she was, and that was fine with me. And she was teasing me about, you know, like, why do you have so many friends who are lesbians? And I was just like, you know, why is what, that's not normal. And, you know, <laughs> and, you know in, in the context of that relationship, I, that's when I first kind of figured out that I was queer, which I had always avoided having to figure out because first of all, you know, the whole idea of being transgender is just completely erased in evangelical mm. subculture. Yep. And it wouldn't have occurred to me that, you know, this was really something you could be. I mean, maybe it would have if I had been primarily attracted to men or if I had felt like really, really femme. Mm. Uh, Cause you know, I probably had some image of like a quote unquote transvestite or crossdresser in my head. Mm. Right. But, but that obviously wasn't me. I always felt very weird kind of, vibe toward masculinity hmm. and just uncomfortable and like really male and masculine spaces and i identified with strong women but i never could kind of put two and two together because i was attracted to girls growing up and so i also didn't even have to realize until later that i can also be attracted to men hmm. but you know sexuality and gender operate entirely independently so you know there i am at age 33 first learning that kind of 
you know, modern knowledge about gender and sexuality. And it's like, whoa, mm, yeah, <laughs> I don't have to be a man. That's awesome. Mm. And scary. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, you can like girls and you can be a girl even if you were, you know, assigned a male gender at birth. Okay. <laughs> um so i was then trying to get to a more stable place in life where i could finally start gender transition and mm-hmm. um that didn't happen uh, until last year and i was finally able to move to portland oregon and was making enough money largely through support by a patreon mm-hmm. um to uh, sustain myself with a basic living and um start medical gender transition so mm-hmm. yeah that's kind of i skipped a lot of you know college years and stuff but that's where i'm from (laughs) (laughs) that's the gist so now in terms of like faith and stuff like that for our listeners like where where are you at now i have a general idea but just for our listeners yeah you know i usually just say i'm uh i'm non-religious like i'm now at this point okay with being described as an atheist it's not usually my go-to description of myself because it Mm -hmm. carries a lot of baggage but i have started working with uh, certain individuals and organizations in the atheist or secular or humanist communities, you know, whatever you want to call that. Um, Particularly often I work with some folks with the Freedom From Religion Foundation Mm. um, and uh, American Atheists, which in its current iteration is doing a lot of work to become intersectional and trying to bring the, the predominantly white male, obnoxious, frankly, you know, atheist subculture and community along. I mean, Mm. they have queer and black and female leadership. Um, So American Atheists is doing good work. And both of those organizations will also work in coalition with, um, you know, like the Interfaith Alliance and other organizations that believe in a robust democratic Mm. definition of religious freedom, which also means freedom from religion. It means that it's your choice, you know. Mm versus what evangelicals are trying to impose and calling religious freedom. Yeah. It's one of the things I appreciate about um, your, like on Twitter, I've seen you kind of um, like go at more atheists who are more uh, kind of, I don't know, nasty for lack of a better word. I mean, evangelicals <laughs> can be really nasty too, obviously, but sometimes yeah, atheists can okay. be the same way and it's just like so shaming. And so, and then you kind of step in, you're like, hold on a second. You, you seem a little bit angry there. <laughs> it's like, take a step back. <laughs> yeah, no, I just like to tease them because, you know, they think they're super rational and not emotional at all. And, and they self-evidently aren't. And mm. then they say things like, well, atheists never just make assertions. Hey, you just made an assertion. Right. <laughs> Uh, so you have this this quote I want to read real quick on your website, um, and I wanted you to maybe, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, but maybe take us a little bit deeper. Um, it says, reclaiming and sharing our evangelical stories serves both to foster healing for evangelicals and to raise awareness among the broader American public uh, of the threat to democracy and human rights posed by theocratic ideology and of the real human harm caused by evangelical ideology and practice. So obviously you touched on some of the, the harm uh, that evangelicalism causes, but I think for our, like our listeners and myself included, like I'm sort of maybe a little bit fresher out of the evangelical world. Like I've maybe the last mm. like three, four years, like I went to an evangelical seminary, Bible college, all those things. And so sometimes it's hard for me to wrap my mind around the harm that it's caused, but I'm beginning mm-hmm. to process like a lot of my own baggage. So I'm just wondering, like for our listeners, if you could just take us a little bit deeper into into that, like from your own story, from stories of people that you've 
like collected these essays from in the book? Like what is the, what does harm look like in the evangelical world? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, well, it seems to me that in indoctrinating children um, into an ideology is inherently a fraught and I think probably for the most part, maybe entirely harmful thing, but particularly if you're teaching children, you know, alternative facts. Mm. I also start one of the hashtags I started that um, hasn't really been visible in a while, but it got a little attention on the web is hashtag Christian alt facts for Christian alternative facts. Mm. Um, you know, telling children that they have to believe demonstrably false things or they will be tortured forever yeah. by a loving yeah. God is, uh, is really, really awful. Mm. Um, and then saying, you know, you have to go out and try to convince other people of not even just the stuff that, you know, can't be proven or disproven one way or another, but of all this, you know, demonstrably false stuff. Mm. And, um, and I would include the, uh, the, the, uh, whole notion of biblical inerrancy in demonstrably false stuff. Like that's yeah. complete and utter nonsense. Mm. And, um, you know, you, you shame and guilt and manipulate and fear monger people into sticking with these beliefs. Um, yeah. And, you know, not processing your emotions about that stuff and not processing your doubts is very psychologically harmful. Mm. Also, you know, the, uh, the strict social hierarchy that is enforced, mm. even if in the kinder, gentler sort of evangelicalism that, you know, the, the, the evangelicalism that pretends to respectability that um, I mostly grew up in, they don't like to spell it out. Mm. Um, but I mean, to be honest, I don't even know today what the um, missionary church's stance is on ordination of women. Um, I just haven't looked it up, but I, we never had any women pastors. I mean, I, yeah. And, you know, most evangelical denominations don't allow right. women to be pastors. Yeah. So they're sending all these messages about inequality. Um, I mean, purity culture was a huge and damaging thing. Like, it's really damaging to be taught uh, to repress your sexuality to that extreme yeah. extent, you know, and then I didn't know I was queer as a kid, but mm. something was going on with me. I mean, I always felt off and different and uncomfortable in my own skin and my coping mechanism was to become uh, very cerebral, like a little anthropologist, like mm. never living in things, but always taking a step back, observing, looking for patterns. I mean, to take a silly example, like I had a notebook I was keeping when I was probably like nine, 10, 11 years old of ways that my grandparents and some, in some cases like my aunt used language differently from my parents. Mm -hmm. I was kind of documenting like North Central Indiana dialect because I was like, oh, this is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Like the past tense of give is gave, but my grandpa, he makes give the past tense of give and come the past tense of come. And I wrote down how they pronounce certain things differently. And so, you know, um, <laughs> um, acad academic kind of like a little PhD student, <laughs> really, really like just living in my head yeah. was how I dealt with always feeling different mm. and never really feeling in the moment or comfortable in my own skin, but not being yeah. able to figure out why. But I also developed like little tics and compulsions and um, a paraphilia that we don't need to get into. And like, it's not directly harmful, but mm. it's just like, I think it was sort of like sublimation or displacement of these sexuality and gender issues onto just a completely unrelated thing yeah. that is not inherently sexual unto itself, you mm. know? Um, so I was having these, these symptoms that, you know, queer people often have in environments where 
they're taught that queerness is not okay if mm-hmm. they're taught about it at all. Yeah. So all of that is abusive. And then also, you know, the racism was implicit and we all, we patted ourselves on the back and thought that we were not racist because we thought we were colorblind, mm-hmm. but you know, we were very, very steeped in white supremacism as well. Yeah. And, um, Maybe it's even in some ways more insidious that we thought we were better than those fundamentalists who actually really believe things like the curse of ham, you know, because we were still perpetuating white supremacy all the same hmm. by voting Republican. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've only really begun to the process of kind of sorting through some of the, I guess, the harm caused to me by my uh, evangelical upbringing. And the biggest thing like I've been processing through of late is like you talked about the doctrine of hell and, eternal suffering for those who basically believe the wrong things about, about Jesus. Like I've, I've been having like really vivid memories of late, like waking up as a child um, from nightmares, like my pillow soaked in tears because I was afraid not so much for myself, but that like my parents or my loved ones were going to, they're going to go to hell and feeling this great amount of shame that I didn't have the courage to evangelize to them or the other people in my family. Or if I did, I didn't have the right words in order to convince them to believe the right things. And then that made me like a disappointment to God. And what I'm finding is that like the residue of that has stuck with me for a long time. Like today I still mm-hmm. feel this bit of shame if I can't articulate my thoughts about my faith, like good enough, or if I don't have the answers to somebody's questions, like I'm at a point where I've abandoned the need to be certain about my faith, but those, those feelings and those memories still like lurk around in my mind, if that makes any sense. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, early childhood um, impressions, um, indoctrination, the programming, it's hard to shake. Mm. Uh, I remember early childhood too, just, you know, lying in bed, crying, praying the sinner's prayer over and over because I was afraid somehow maybe I was going to go to hell. Like I didn't do it right or it didn't take or I'd somehow had, you know, like gotten it revoked or something. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you forgot to confess something or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had so much unnecessary anxiety as a kid. Yeah. Sometimes too around witnessing, which as an introvert was just like, not going to be something I could ever be good at. Uh, there's a lot of ways that um, evangelical subculture is bad for introverts. I mean, just the, first of all, there's like never any concept of boundaries or consent for anything. So, mm. you know, this is what we're doing and everyone is doing it. Right. So, you know, <laughs> popcorn prayer, go around the room and pray. Or why don't you open us in prayer? Well, you can't say no. <laughs> but I don't yeah. want to pray in front of people. <laughs> it's like, well, I thought why not? in Matthew yeah. they said we're not supposed to do that. I mean, <laughs> Are we supposed to go in a closet? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, like I didn't actually argue those points, but like I did not want to pray in yeah. front of people. I hated yep. it. Yeah. I hated greeting time at church. I yeah. still do if I ever go to church, like Ugh. which happens once in a blue moon. I mean, hmm to go with my family or something. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So talk to the person for a moment who uh, maybe they're in that process of deconstructing. They're trying to sort through, you know, their, their own toxic baggage that's kind of coming up. And obviously every person, every story is, is different, but kind of after gathering these essays from, from, for the book and conversations you've had your own experience, like what are some common themes that you think might be helpful for people as they look to carve some way forward, like maybe, maybe it's a path toward a different understanding of God. Maybe it's a path away from God altogether. That might be forever or for a time. Like what's your advice for that person who is just, they feel like the bottom of the Jenga towers come out and they're trying to figure out like what to do with all the stuff. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, first two fundamental things. Um, 
you know, they are absolutely not alone. Other people are there and have been there and their feelings and their doubts and their uncertainties are all valid. And, you know, I think a lot of people do need to hear that mm. uh, it's good. It's not just okay. It, it's good. It's even necessary to come to a healthy place to trust yourself and yeah. to love yourself. Yeah. Um, which is not to say that you can never be wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, we can, all, we can all be wrong and we need to be open to listening and learning, but we don't need to let others define us. So yeah. I'm a big advocate of um, respecting our own and others' moral autonomy mm. and therefore, of course, of um, pluralism. And I mean, well, pluralism, uh, if you want to define it in one sense, I mean, it's just a fact of life in a modern society that we have a lot of different people and different groups of people with different viewpoints and different backgrounds and so forth, right? Like Mm -hmm. diversity of opinions uh, and beliefs exists and it's not going away. Yeah. Um, So I think it's important for us if we want to have a a healthy uh, and equitable democratic society to embrace pluralism, embrace Mm -hmm. living with people who are different than us and to build bridges to people on the basis of shared values Mm. which to me are far more important than shared beliefs. And this is a hard sell to a lot of people in the atheist community, but I do push it there. Mm. (laughs) Like this, I think this needs to happen. Yeah. Um, You know, that um, no one else can tell people where they can or should end up and they can also change their minds. Um, So I think, you know, to know that you're not alone, a lot of times it does help to read stories, connect with people like in the, the Facebook group called Exvangelical mm. or on Twitter where a lot of people have used hashtags to um, share their experiences. And so you can just see that you're not alone and that can be a really big thing initially, but also that does not uh, replace therapy. So get therapy if possible yeah. because uh, sorting through this stuff is, is not easy. Mm. And um, you know, a lot of people sometimes I think end up thinking that they've healed and moved on, uh, but they haven't really fully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they end up replicating destructive and abusive patterns. Because what is, what is fundamentalist religion really but a cycle of abuse projected on a social scale, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, um, evangelicalism itself, evangelical communities, they are the, the, the social and physical embodiment of a cycle of abuse. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and even if some people's experience is only the manipulation and coercion, the, the spiritual and mental abuse, it's still abuse. Yeah. You, just, you don't get to tell people who they have to be. Right. And that leaves a lot of us, you know, once we do start deconstructing, just really afraid and uncertain about what our life can possibly mean, who we are and what we want, what we should yeah. want. Yeah. I was um, talk about like a, like a pluralistic um, idea like just like all different like various beliefs in, in terms of like Christianity and faith and things and when I started becoming more vocal about my own deconstruction I was in um, a doctoral program at the seminary that I was at I was getting to the end and I had this podcast and I was starting to bring on voices of people who were thinking very differently than what you know my school my upbringing would have considered to be orthodox and so we were bringing on a guest like I brought on Brian McLaren he talked about hell we brought on well uh, william paul young the guy who wrote the shack and he talked about some things and i got a, an email from uh, someone in the school and they said who was fairly prominent and they said you know i've known you for a long time and i'm concerned about you because you're moving away from orthodox christianity and i was like i was like i don't think i am like, i know i think that the things that i'm exploring <laughs> are actually it might not be what 
this stream considered orthodox, but I think the earliest part of the Christian roots had various thoughts. And a lot of those various thoughts were deemed heretical and, you know, the books were burned and that was the end of it. But I, I think that the very roots of the Christian faith are a lot more pluralistic than maybe we would like to think. I don't know if that's true, but sure. that's kind of what I've been wrestling with lately. Yeah, well, the doctrine of apocatastasis, I always have trouble saying that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or of, of um, you know, universal salvation yeah. preached by people like Oregon and Gregory of Nyssa among the early church fathers was never actually condemned, even though Oregon himself was, mm. by a church council. So if you want to run with that, I mean, not that I give the church councils any authority whatsoever. But, sure, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, particularly in Eastern Orthodoxy today, which has a whole spate of its own problems. Yeah. And I know that pretty well as somebody who has studied Orthodox Christianity as an outsider hmm. um, and worked with a lot of Orthodox people. Like, I don't want to say it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. It can be. I mean, it can be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's not inherently bad either. But um, at least in, in Orthodoxy, at least among like, you know, serious theologians and and sort of moderate to liberal people. Universal salvation is considered to be a perfectly valid doctrine that you can hold in the Orthodox Church. Yeah. So last question for you. Having grown up in the church, uh, what advice do you have for the church? So we have a lot of pastors who listen to the podcast and uh, maybe one of those pastors realizes, you know, that there's problems with evangelicalism and they're trying to lead their congregation kind of out of the mess in a different place. Like what's your advice for for that pastor what might that look like and i asked that specifically Mm -hmm. because i was thinking the other day i was talking to one of my friends who is a pastor and i i said to him i'm like i'm not trying to convince you to come to where i am or anything like that i said but what i'm what i want to encourage you to think about is like there's people sitting in your pews who you don't know are wrestling with these things but they are and they have no Mm -hmm. place to go with it Um, but you have the power to kind of help create a safe space for them to at least explore. So like, what's your advice to that person who's trying to do the right thing? They're trying to um, make their environment less toxic. Uh, What can they do? Start listening and stop centering themselves. Yeah. And, you know, uh, how do we get young people back in the church is the wrong fucking question. Yes. Um, I think it would be great for them to just sit with a lot of the stories shared in a book like Empty the Pews, which does contain mostly ex-evangelical narratives, but um, yeah. Lauren O'Neill actually grew up sort of mainline-ish Presbyterian, and then we have a couple ex- ex-Catholic and ex-Mormon stories in there as well. Hmm. Um, take seriously what those of us who experienced real harm in these religious environments uh, and, and left them behind have to say about it. Hmm. Uh, don't immediately make it a personal attack on you or you know, um, don't make it about you. Yeah. Just listen. Yeah. So I think it would be great if pastors would, would pick up Empty the Pews, maybe even put it in the church library. Yeah. You don't have to endorse it. Just have to say, this is something that's out there because of things that people have experienced in the church. Yeah. yeah these are people's stories and they're real. So let's right. consider so like that. One yeah. of my big problems with evangelicalism is that it co-ops people's stories. It doesn't let us have our own stories. And for people who do leave the church, they try to tell the story for us. So for me, yeah. you know, human stories are very powerful. They're how we, they're really how we live and how we understand ourselves and make meaning, you know, by constructing these narratives. Yeah. So by trying to carve out some, a seat at the table, let's say, to, to um, grapple away from 
whoever, uh, a seat at the table in public discussions of Christianity uh, so that ex-evangelicals and other people who've come out of hardline Christianity of various kinds can have a voice in those conversations yeah. uh, is really important to me. And it's about, you know, the power of stories and having the power to tell our own stories rather than being told, oh, they were never saved in the first place mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever else they were dashing demises, they fell away, they backslid, yeah. you know. Um, how about listening to how we frame our own stories? Yeah. You know, I mean, how many times yeah. did I hear a sermon, including from quote unquote intellectual Marcus Warner about how atheists don't have any meaning in their lives? Yes, they do. Mm. Why don't you ask them what it is? Right. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> ask them for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good point too that you make about not, not being, not taking everything so personal. Like I was having a, a conversation with someone who, um, used to be a very close friend and they were fairly offended by some of the things that maybe I would write on my blog or be talked about on the podcast. And it's kind of like every time you talk about evangelicalism, you say something negative, you're attacking me. And I'm like, Oh, like I'm not, I'm not attacking you. I'm not, ta- I'm not like having an episode that's about your theology or, you know, your toxic beliefs, but I'm just talking about an institution that quite frankly, I was, born into and raised in and educated in that now I'm understanding there's severe problems with it. So I'm trying to shine a light on those problems. That's not to say that there aren't evangelicals who can actually do things differently maybe do things in a way that's not toxic or not harmful, but I'm shining a light on the larger thing as a whole. So I think kind of dropping defenses and being willing to listen and being able to understand Mm -hmm. that, like separate yourself, I guess, from the institution versus the person that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I do think that, you know, even if we go with a supposedly sort of moderate theological formula like Bevington's, I I do think that there are issues with evangelical theology that, you know, would tend to create abusive patterns and that would be swimming upstream to work against them. Mm. And I mean, the two parts in particular that I would really focus on would be biblicism and uh, conversionism. I don't think anyone should ever be trying to convert anybody to another faith. It's always objectifying, it's demeaning, uh, it's condescending, uh, it's tacky. Yeah. And it just doesn't need to be done. Yeah. You know, if you really feel like everyone, only only people who believe in Jesus will be saved, well, that's a horrible belief. You're welcome to have a horrible belief. Right. But you don't yeah. have to act on it all the time. And you can yes. live the gospel yes. out as yes. you as you as you see it. That's right. Uh, you don't have to just go shoving it into other people's lives who don't want it. Respect other people's autonomy. Yeah. You know? Uh, So conversionism is a problem. Mm -hmm. And um, I think biblicism also tends to be a problem. And maybe, again, it doesn't have to be. Again, if you interpret, you know, preach the gospel to to all the nations as, you know, live a good life, be a good example, that's not so bad. If you interpret it as, I have permission from God to illegally make contact with uncontacted tribes who might die of a pandemic when I meet them in order to preach the gospel to them. You are a horrible person. Yeah. You know? right. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and and um, biblicism, I mean, if you interpret it as an inerrancy, as most evangelicals do, uh, also creates just a lot of cognitive dissonance and harms people's intellectual lives and, you know, harm science in America, it's not a good thing. Mm. But ascribing some authority to the scriptures, but having leeway for history and culture and science, I mean, okay, maybe you can do that and be an evangelical too. Um, And I I know that some people do. I mean, I absolutely adore 
uh, Reverend Dr. Welton Gaddy of State of Belief Radio, which is um, based in Louisiana and it's syndicated there, and I think maybe in some other parts of the South on the radio. And he hmm. posted as a podcast online. And he's just one of these most like lovely Jimmy Carter type old Baptist men. Like, I just love him. He's so <laughs> nice. He hmm. cares. He listens. He's not like any evangelical I ever knew growing <laughs> he up. He has a heart. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he doesn't take things personally. Yeah. He wants to have a real conversation with you. He's not trying to lead you somewhere. He doesn't get mad. He's soft-spoken. He is just a sweet man who mm. cares about people. And that's how he lives his faith. So why aren't there more people like Reverend Dr. Bolton Gaddy? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter. <laughs> we put the two of them together. <laughs> well, Chrissy, uh, we're just about out of time, but uh, this was super, super helpful. And thank you for taking the time to join me. I appreciate it. You bet, Glenn. I really love having these kinds of conversations. So thank you for having me on. Thank you. And before you go, uh, other than Twitter, where can people find you online? And then also, are you working on any projects that you want to share with us? Uh, so I can be found at cstroop.com. I sometimes blog there and I have some resources there for deconstructing people. I currently write regularly for Religion Dispatches and also for The Conversationalists, which is a uh, pro-democracy media outlet. Hmm. And um, yeah, I've, I've got some things kind of potentially in the works, but okay. um, I'm also still just trying to promote Empty the Pews at this time. I do think it can be really helpful if people are willing to sit with it and listen and see where people are coming from to read it. So I'd, I'd love it if people would get a copy of Empty the Pews. I will put that in the show notes and maybe we'll do a giveaway too. I think that'd be fun. Cool. Well, Chrissy, we'll do this again sometime and uh, thanks again. You bet. Thanks, Glenn. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.